Section 24 of the World's Famous Orations, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Famous Orations, Volume 3. On the Right to Tax America. By William Pitt, Earl of Chatham. Footnote. Delivered in the House of Commons, January 14, 1766 and reported by Sir Robert Dean and Lord Charlemont, here slightly abridged. Pitt, partially recovered from his illness, had then just returned from Bath. Although in sympathy with the Rockingham Ministry, he had refused to become a member of it. In August of this year he was made a peer. End footnote. 1766. It is a long time, Mr. Speaker, since I have attended in Parliament. When the resolution was taken in this house to tax America, I was ill in bed. If I could have endured to be carried in my bed, so great was the agitation of my mind for the consequences, I would have solicited some kind hand to have laid me down on this floor, to have borne my testimony against it. It is now an act that has passed. Footnote. The Stamp Act had passed and become a law on March twenty-second, 1765. Two weeks after Chatham spoke, Franklin was examined in the House of Commons. For Franklin's examination, see Volume 8. End footnote. I would speak with decency of every act of this House, but I must beg the indulgence of the House to speak of it with freedom. I hope a day may soon be appointed to consider the state of the nation with respect to America. I hope gentlemen will come to this debate with all the temper and impartiality that His Majesty recommends, and the importance of the subject requires. A subject of greater importance than ever engaged the attention of this House. That subject only accepted when, near a century ago, it was the question whether you yourselves were to be bond or free. In the meantime, as I cannot depend upon my health for any future day, such is the nature of my infirmities, I will beg to say a few words at present, leaving the justice, the equity, the policy, the expediency of the act to another time. I will only speak to one point, a point which seems not to have been generally understood. I mean to the right. Some gentlemen seem to have considered it as a point of honor. If gentlemen consider it in that light, they leave all measures of right and wrong to follow a delusion that may lead to destruction. It is my opinion that this kingdom has no right to lay a tax upon the colonies. At the same time, I assert the authority of this kingdom over the colonies to be sovereign and supreme in every circumstance of government and legislation whatsoever. They are the subjects of this kingdom, equally entitled with yourselves to all the natural rights of mankind and the peculiar privileges of Englishmen, equally bound by its laws, and equally participating in the constitution of this free country. The Americans are the sons, not the bastards of England. Taxation is no part of the governing or legislative power. The taxes are a voluntary gift and grant of the commons alone. In legislation the three estates of the realm are alike concerned, but the concurrence of the peers and the crown to a tax is only necessary to clothe it with the form of a law. The gift and grant is of the commons alone. In ancient days the crown, the barons, and the clergy possessed the lands. In those days the barons and the clergy gave and granted to the crown. They gave and granted what was their own, 
At present, since the discovery of America and other circumstances permitting, the commons are become the proprietors of the land. The church, God bless it, has but a pittance. The property of the lords compared with that of the commons is as a drop of water in the ocean, and this house represents those commons, the proprietors of the lands, and those proprietors virtually represent the rest of the inhabitants. When therefore in this house we give and grant, we give and grant what is our own. But in an American tax what do we do? We, your majesty's commons for Great Britain, give and grant to your majesty what? Our own property? No. We give and grant to your majesty the property of your majesty's commons of America. It is an absurdity in terms. The distinction between legislation and taxation is essentially necessary to liberty. The crown and the peers are equally legislative powers within the commons. If taxation be a part of simple legislation, the crown and the peers have rights in taxation as well as yourselves, rights which they will claim, which they will exercise, whenever the principle can be supported by power. There is an idea in some that the colonies are virtually represented in the house. I would fain know by whom an American is represented here. Is he represented by any knight of the shire in any county in this kingdom? Would to God that respectable representation was augmented to a greater number. Or will you tell him that he is represented by any representative of a borough? A borough which, perhaps, its own representatives never saw. This is what is called the rotten part of the Constitution. It cannot continue a century. If it does not drop, it must be amputated. The idea of a virtual representation of America in this house is the most contemptible idea that ever entered into the head of a man. It does not deserve a serious refutation. The commons of America represented in their several assemblies have ever been in possession of the exercise of this, their constitutional right of giving and granting their own money. They would have been slaves if they had not enjoyed it. At the same time, this kingdom as the supreme governing and legislative power has always bound the colonies by her laws, by her regulations, and restrictions in trade, in navigation, in manufactures, in everything except that of taking their money out of their pockets without their consent. As Pitt sat down, George Grenville secured the floor and said, I cannot understand the difference between external and internal taxes. They are the same in effect and differ only in name. That this kingdom has the sovereign, the supreme legislative power over America is granted. It cannot be denied. And taxation is a part of that sovereign power. It is one branch of the legislation. It is, it has been, exercised over those who were not, who were never represented. It is exercised over the India Company, the merchants of London, the proprietors of the stocks, and over many great manufacturing towns. It was exercised over the County Palatine of Chester, and the Bishopric of Durham, before they sent any representatives to Parliament. I appeal for proof to the preambles of the acts which gave them representatives, one in the reign of Henry the Eighth, the other in that of Charles the Second. When I proposed to tax America, I asked the House if any gentleman would object to the right. I repeatedly asked it, and no man would attempt to deny it. Protection and obedience are reciprocal. Great Britain protects America. America is bound to yield obedience. If not, tell me when the Americans were emancipated. When they want the protection of this kingdom, they are always very ready to ask it. 
that protection has always been afforded them in the most full and ample manner. The nation has run herself into an immense debt to give them their protection, and now when they are called upon to contribute a small share toward the public expense, an expense arising from themselves, they renounce your authority, insult your officers, and break out, I might almost say, into open rebellion. The seditious spirit of the colonies owes its birth to the factions in this house. Gentlemen are careless of the consequences of what they say, provided it answers the purposes of opposition. We were told we trod on tender ground. We were bid to expect disobedience. What is this but telling the Americans to stand out against the law? to encourage their obstinacy with the expectation of support from hence. Let us only hold out a little, they would say. Our friends will soon be in power. Ungrateful people of America! Bounties have been extended to them. When I had the honor of serving the crown, while you yourselves were loaded with an enormous debt, you gave bounties on their lumber, on their iron, their hemp, and many other articles. You have relaxed in their favor the act of navigation, that palladium of the British commerce. And yet I have been abused in all the public papers as an enemy to the trade of America. I have been particularly charged with giving orders and instructions to prevent the Spanish trade, and thereby stopping the channel by which alone North America used to be supplied with cash for remittances to this country. I defy any man to produce any such orders or instructions. I discouraged no trade but what was illicit, what was prohibited by an act of Parliament. I desire a West India merchant, Mr. Long, well known in the city, a gentleman of character, may be examined. He will tell you that I offered to do everything in my power to advance the trade of America. I was above giving an answer to anonymous calumnies, but in this place it becomes one to wipe off the aspersions. When Grenville ceased, several members got up to speak, though Pitt started to rise. The house became clamorous for Pitt, Pitt, so that the speaker was obliged to call them to order. I do not apprehend, said Pitt, I am speaking twice. I did expressly reserve a part of my subject in order to save the time of this house, but I am compelled to proceed in it. I do not speak twice, only finish what I designedly left imperfect. But if the house is of a different opinion, far be it from me to indulge a wish of transgression against order. I am content, if it be your pleasure, to be silent. Here he paused. But the house shouted, Go on! Go on! And he proceeded. Gentlemen, sir, have been charged with giving birth to sedition in America. They have spoken their sentiments with freedom against this unhappy act, and that freedom has become their crime. Sorry I am to hear the liberty of speech in this house imputed as a crime, but the imputation shall not discourage me. It is a liberty I mean to exercise. No gentleman ought to be afraid to exercise it. It is a liberty by which the gentleman who calumniates it might have profited. He ought to have desisted from his project. The gentleman tells us America is obstinate. America is almost in open rebellion. I rejoice that America has resisted. Three millions of people, so dead to all the feelings of liberty as voluntarily to submit to be slaves, would have been fit instruments to make slaves of the rest. I come not here armed at all points with law cases and acts of Parliament, with the statute book doubled down in dog's ears to defend the cause of liberty. If I had, I myself would have cited the two cases of Chester and Durham.
I would have cited them to show that even under former arbitrary reigns, parliaments were ashamed of taxing a people without their consent, and allowed them representatives. Why did the gentleman confine himself to Chester and Durham? He might have taken a higher example in Wales, Wales that never was taxed by parliament till it was incorporated. I would not debate a particular point of law with the gentleman. I know his abilities. I have been obliged to his diligent researches. But for the defense of liberty upon a general principle, upon a constitutional principle, it is a ground on which I stand firm, on which I dare meet any man. The gentleman tells us of many who are taxed and are not represented. The India Company, merchants, stockholders, manufacturers. Surely many of these are represented in other capacities as owners of land or as freemen of boroughs. It is a misfortune that more are not equally represented. But they are all inhabitants, and as such are they not virtually represented? Many have it in their option to be actually represented. They have connections with those that elect, and they have influence over them. The gentleman mentioned the stockholders. I hope he does not reckon the debts of the nation as a part of the national estate. Since the accession of King William, many ministers, some of great, others of more moderate abilities, have taken the lead of government. None of these thought, or even dreamed, of robbing the colonies of their constitutional rights. That was reserved to mark the era of the late administration. Not that there were wanting some, when I had the honor to serve His Majesty, to propose to me to burn my fingers with an American Stamp Act. With the enemy at their back, with our bayonets at their breasts, in the day of their distress, perhaps the Americans would have submitted to the imposition, but it would have been taking an ungenerous and unjust advantage. The gentleman boasts of his bounties to America. Are not these bounties intended finally for the benefit of this kingdom? If not, he has misapplied the national treasures. I am no courtier of America. I stand up for this kingdom. I maintain that Parliament has a right to bind to restrain America. Our legislative power over the colonies is sovereign and supreme. When it ceases to be sovereign and supreme, I would advise every gentleman to sell his lands, if he can, and embark for that country. When two countries are connected together like England and her colonies, without being incorporated, the one must necessarily govern. The greater must rule the less. But she must so rule it as not to contradict the fundamental principles that are common to both. If the gentleman does not understand the difference between external and internal taxes, I cannot help it. There is a plain distinction between taxes levied for the purposes of raising a revenue and duties imposed for the regulation of trade, for the accommodation of the subject, although in the consequences some revenue may incidentally arise from the latter. The gentleman asks, when were the colonies emancipated? I desire to know when were they made slaves, but I dwell not upon words. When I had the honor of serving His Majesty, I availed myself of the means of information which I derived from my office. I speak, therefore, from knowledge. My materials were good. I was at pains to collect, to digest, to consider them. And I will be bold to affirm that the profits to Great Britain from the trade of the colonies through all its branches is two millions a year. This is the fund that carried you triumphantly through the last war. Footnote. The war with France which, in its American phase, virtually ended with the victory of Wolfe at Quebec in 1759. 
End footnote. The estates that were rented at £2,000 a year three score years ago are at 3000 at present. Those estates sold then from 15 to 18 years purchase. The same may now be sold for 30. You owe this to America. This is the price America pays you for her protection. And shall a miserable financier come with a boast that he can bring a peppercorn into the exchequer by the loss of millions to the nation? I dare not say how much higher these profits may be augmented. Omitting the immense increase of people by natural population in the northern colonies, and the immigration from every part of Europe, I am convinced on other grounds that the commercial system of America may be altered to advantage. You have prohibited where you ought to have encouraged. You have encouraged where you ought to have prohibited. Improper restraints have been laid on the continent in favor of the islands. You have but two nations to trade with in America. Would you had twenty. Let acts of Parliament in consequence of treaties remain. But let not an English minister become a custom-house officer for Spain or for any foreign power. Much is wrong. Much may be amended for the general good of the whole. Does the gentleman complain he has been misrepresented in the public prints? It is a common misfortune. In the Spanish affair of the last war I was abused in all the newspapers for having advised His Majesty to violate the laws of nations with regard to Spain. The abuse was industriously circulated even in handbills. If administration did not propagate the abuse, administration never contradicted it. I will not say what advice I did give the king. My advice is in writing, signed by myself in the possession of the crown. But I will say what advice I did not give to the king. I did not advise him to violate any of the laws of nations. The gentleman must not wonder he was not contradicted when, as minister, he asserted the right of Parliament to tax America. I know not how it is, but there is a modesty in this house which does not choose to contradict a minister. Even your chair, sir, looks too often towards St. James. I wish gentlemen would get the better of this modesty. If they do not, perhaps the collective body may begin to abate of its respect for the representative. Lord Bacon has told me that a great question would not fail of being agitated at one time or another. I was willing to agitate such a question at the proper season viz. that of the German War. Footnote, the Seven Years' War, or as it is sometimes called, the Third Silesian War of Frederick the Great. End footnote. My German War, they called it. Every session I called out, has anybody any objection to the German War? Nobody would object to it. One gentleman only accepted, since removed to the upper house, by succession to an ancient barony. He told me he did not like a German War. I honored the man for it, and was sorry when he was turned out of his post. A great deal has been said without doors of the power and of the strength of America. It is a topic that ought to be cautiously meddled with. In a good cause, on a sound bottom, the force of this country can crush America to atoms. I know the valor of your troops. I know the skill of your officers. There is not a company of foot that has served in America, out of which you may not pick a man of sufficient knowledge and experience to make a governor of a colony there. But on this ground, on the Stamp Act which so many here will think a crying injustice, I am one who will lift up my hands against it. In such a cause your success would be hazardous. America, if she fell, would fall like the strong man. She would embrace the pillars of the state and pull down the Constitution along with her. Is this your boasted peace? 
not to sheathe the sword in its scabbard but to sheathe it in the bowels of your countrymen will you quarrel with yourselves now the whole house of bourbon is united against you while france disturbs your fisheries in newfoundland embarrasses your slave trade to africa and withholds from your subjects in canada their property stipulated by treaty while the ransom for the manillas is denied by spain and its gallant conqueror basely traduced into a mean plunderer a gentleman whose noble and generous spirit would do honor to the proudest grandee of the country the americans have not acted in all things with prudence and temper they have been wronged they have been driven to madness by injustice will you punish them for the madness you have occasioned rather let prudence and temper come first from this side i will undertake for america that she will follow the example there are two lines in a ballad of priors of a man's behavior to his wife so applicable to you in your colonies that i cannot help repeating them be to her faults a little blind be to her virtues very kind upon the whole i will beg leave to tell the house what is my opinion it is that the stamp act be repealed absolutely totally and immediately that the reason for the repeal be assigned viz because it was founded on an erroneous principle at the same time let the sovereign authority of this country over the colonies be asserted in as strong terms as can be devised and be made to extend to every point of legislation whatsoever that we may bind their trade confine their manufactures and exercise every power whatsoever except that of taking money from their pockets without consent end of section twenty four recording by philip gould